Welcome to the Lola Community Podcast. In this podcast, we will have questions, quotes, and conversations between different people, and your host will be Pleasant Selecki. Thank you. I hope you enjoy it. Today, I'm super excited to bring you my friend Catherine Hayes and to dig deep into the Enneagram. Many of you know how long I've been studying it. Um, I'm so excited to bring Catherine's wisdom to you. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Feel free to reach out after with any questions, comments, or feedback. All right, let's get started. Okay, hi everyone. It's Pleasant, and today I'm here with my new friend, Catherine Hayes. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Pleasant. Happy to be here. And we're going to start this episode um, with our quote, and then we'll move into our question for today. So, our quote for today is For real transformation to occur, which means a shift in our soul's center of gravity from the personality to essence. We need to know ourselves as essence in a way that is beyond doubt. All of the faith we have in any spiritual teacher and teaching is not enough to change radically our sense of who we are, nor are all of our mental concepts of what objective reality looks like enough to shift our orientation. Our souls transform only through direct experience. And that's from Sandra Maitri. Maitri. So I invited Catherine to come on today to talk about something that I'm uh, deeply studying and obsessed with and a student of, not an expert in, um, which is the Enneagram. And um, Catherine, can you start by telling us what is the Enneagram and why should we study it? Yeah, I'd be happy to. The Enneagram is actually um, a synthesis of an ancient wisdom that dates back as early as ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, coupled with modern psychology. And one of the first um, people to bring it forward was George Gurdjieff, who was a Russian philosopher in the early part of the last century. And one of the things that he talked about was that the Enneagram can be a map of the human psyche that liberates us from our suffering. And so it goes along with what Sandra's quote was. It's liberating us from the kind of habitual patterns of our personality that keep us asleep to the truth of who we are. So the reason we should study it is that it helps us to understand those personality patterns that we all have. It's part of being human, to have an ego and a personality. But to understand that that's the really more constricted part of ourselves and we're actually much more expansive and we have an essential nature and it's a doorway into that essential nature. Wow. Okay. So how did you get involved in Enneagram? How did you learn about it? Tell us a little of your story. Yeah, it's really an interesting story because I actually stumbled across it back in the early 1990s and it was still very, uh, no one really heard about it. I took a couple of workshops and I found it fascinating, but it kind of sat in the back burner because I would talk about it and no one knew what I was talking about. But it really was something that, that really struck me as being really fascinating. Then fast forward um, in 2005, I had an accident. I was 
you know, working as a professor in a, you know, prestigious academic institution had worked really hard to get there as a type three. Um, <laughs> and I had this accident, which I now see as divine intervention. And what, I don't remember the details of the accident, but there were witnesses. My dog got excited to go to the pet store to get some treats and he pulled on the leash and there was black ice. And I, I lost my footing apparently, and I fell backwards and landed on my head. And one of the first things I remember when I woke up, in addition to feeling numbness to the tip of every finger and every toe, was a profound like thought, like a, a, an intuitive thought that passed through me, my whole being. And it was, it's time to change your life. And I thought, well, what is that supposed to mean? And I was just so confused. So again, it was something that kind of stayed in the back burner. Fast forward a year to the day from that accident, I met, I met Russ Hudson, who was now my Enneagram teacher and wrote the forward for my book. And I met him at a workshop in Western Massachusetts. And the way he taught the Enneagram was a very deep kind of spiritual dive. And it really struck me like on, on a deep level. And I remember speaking to him at the end of the workshop saying to him, telling him, oh, I'm sure I'm a type four, but I've had to live my life as a type three. That's not uncommon when studying the Enneagram is that we have some rejection to our type because the ego doesn't want to be called out. So anyway, I, I started, um, once I took his workshop, I became really enthralled with his teaching. I went online to find his book, which is called The Wisdom of the Enneagram, a beautiful book. And I saw that he had longer workshops than just the weekend workshops. And so I looked to see when the next one was. I lived in Boston. The next one was in San Francisco, which I just love San Francisco. And it was in six weeks time. And this has never happened before or since. So I see this as another sign. I had an open airline ticket to San Francisco. And so I booked the flight and I went to that workshop and that really opened me up to the Enneagram. And I just really started, I just stayed with it as a really a tool for my own personal growth. Um, it was really transformative and freeing for me. And now I, I use it with my clients and I use it in organizations as well. Okay, so let's say someone's listening to this, they've never heard about it. Can you tell us um, your descriptions of the nine types? Sure. Let me just um, start by saying that there's, um, the theory is that each of these nine types, each of these nine personality types are formed in reaction to a kind of a perception of a disconnect from our true nature. If we think of um, a brand new baby, like their pure essence, right? Pure love. They don't have to get a PhD for us to love them. <laughs> they don't throw things across the room if they don't get their, you know, their feeding, right? They're just pure essence, pure love. And, you know, we develop, every human being develops an ego personality as they grow into, you know, later childhood. Um, it's not that we're pretty young when we start developing our ego. So if you think of um, the, the essential qualities of that beautiful being and the personality trying to recreate them, that's the theory of what the personality typing is. So um, I'll start, as, as I've always been taught, to start with the, the belly center. There are three centers of these types, the belly center or the body center, the heart center, and the head center. The belly center types, the three types, the, the theme there is autonomy, kind of like, don't, don't mess with me. The first of those types is the type eight, also called the challenger. So if we think of what the disconnect is from that true or divine nature, it's from a sense of aliveness, 
you know, the life force. And so the personality is really always trying to create that sense of aliveness. So they tend to be people with a lot of energy. They do things that are big. They have a big presence in the world. The personality trying to recreate that sense of aliveness will never get it just right. There's always going to be some distortion. That's why it's so helpful for that person to understand that that's why they are big in the world and have a lot of energy when they can understand that what's underneath that is a kind of an underlying sense of disconnect from the life force or their strength. As they bring that into their awareness, their natural strength just comes on. And that is so much more powerful than anything a personality can manufacture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you yeah. have kind of examples of people in the world who are types by them? Yeah. There is some controversy about Donald Trump, but I firmly believe he's a type eight, but I'll also describe the distinction between him and someone like Mother Teresa, who's always also believed to be a type eight. Within each of these nine types are nine levels of growth or health. Mm -hmm. The top three levels are the healthiest levels where the ego or the personality has a very little hold. It really is the person living from their essential self. Yeah, yeah. the gifts of their type, but not the distorted reactivity of their personality. So if you think of Mother Teresa, you know, a healthy type eight is someone who is living in their natural essential strength and their being in service to the world. The type eights actually have a beautiful heart. We often talk about the magnanimous heart of the eight. So here's this wonderful spunky woman who went out and served the world but she had to be very strong to do that. When we see someone, and not to get political here, but everyone knows Donald Trump at this point, and we see that he is someone who's always showing his strength and his power and his force. And he's living from this place of reactivity. When we're in our personality and we're down these levels of health, um, where, where many of us sink into through at any moment, in and out throughout the course of a day, we tend to be more reactive. So you can see the difference between someone who's embodying strength and someone who's manufacturing strength. Yeah. That makes sense? Beautiful, yep. Yeah. So then the type nine, also in the belly center, uh, we call the peacemaker. So going back to that disconnect from essential nature, you know, the infant doesn't realize that they're separate from their mom or the world around them. So there's that real deep sense of unity and oneness. Mm -hmm. The personality of the type nine is formed in reaction to that being missing or gone. So that personality is always trying to maintain the connection. So they're the peacemaker. They don't like to have any ripples. They don't like to have disharmony. They don't like confrontation. But underneath that is this fear that, oh, the oneness is gone. So when, when a, a healthy type nine can be grounded in what's real and what's in front of them, they actually can be wonderful peacemakers, but dealing with reality. Often when I teach the types, I say for the type nine, there could be like a, you know, a fire outside, but they'll be, could you please pass this altar? Isn't this lovely soup? I don't want to look at that. That's going to create disharmony. Um, Ronald Reagan was uh, a type nine. You, you know, he was someone who wanted to, you know, to keep the peace and um, people really, really related to that. People like being around the type nines. They have a kindness to them and a gentleness to them. Um, but again, the autonomy, so the autonomy in the type eight is more like, don't mess with me. And they can be very forceful. The autonomy in the type nine is they don't sense their anger. Um, they don't sense any of those emotions because they want very much to keep the peace, but that's also autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. 
And the type one, which is the last type of this body or belly center, the disconnect that that personality is formed in reaction to is a disconnect from a sense of goodness or sacredness. You know, the baby is just pure goodness and sacredness, right? So this personality forms in reaction to that being missing. So there's a, this inherent and unconscious fear that they're somehow not good or corrupt in some way. So they create a life of which their things are just, just so perfect. They want to be seen as good. They want to do good in the world. An example of a very kind of high level or healthy type one is Mahatma Gandhi. Because at their best, type ones, they have an incredible connection to uh, truth and justice. And they have an ability to really see what's wrong with the world and to fix it. When we're down the levels of health and more contract, co excuse me, contracted in the personality, there's a sense of being right, I'm right, you're wrong, things need to be perfect. So they're often called the perfectionist or the judge. Is that Martha Stewart? <laughs> I think so. May yes. have had a, yeah, the, uh, the unhealthier version. Yeah, yeah. Intensive time with her. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a sense of having, having to be right and having to have it just so. The beautiful thing is once um, people uncover their Enneagram type and see that what's underneath it is this fear, they can release that and become much more of service in the world. Yeah. Um, so that's the belly or the body center, also called the instinctive center. That's where our instincts live. And the next center is the heart center. So the theme here is how I want to be seen. And so the type two is the first type in that center. And they're referred to as the helper. That disconnect from the essential nature is a disconnect from a sense of love or lovability. So think of it. If I'm always doing for others, I'm going to get appreciation in return. So it fills that void of feeling that the love is gone. Now, what happens very often with the type two is that they give and give and give and they become so resentful because they're not getting it in return. So I always say, you know, put your oxygen mask on first. It's so important for the type two to exercise their own self-care, put themselves as a priority. And from that place, they can be of such wonderful service to the world. And they're truly at their best. They're truly altruistic, but they're doing it from a more grounded place and a more uh, authentic place. The type three, also in the heart center, this is my type, full disclosure, <laughs> called the achiever. Um, that disconnect from the essential nature is a disconnect from a sense of value. You know, as I said, the infant doesn't need to do anything for us to love them. So the personality of the type three forms in reaction to that being ripped away. So now they have no sense of value. So they have to get it from the outside. So they tend to be very um, success oriented. Um, I have two doctoral degrees. You know, I worked my tail off, went to Harvard, was a full-time faculty member at Harvard. I didn't even know that that's what I was doing to fill this void of not feeling valued. Um, and really when I woke up to that, what I saw was that value comes from who we are, not what we do. And that's what my book is about, is just the transformational journey for me um, using the Enneagram. And there are lots of famous threes, Oprah, um, and she's a healthy type three because at their best, type threes can be very inspiring. They have a lot of courage. They want to live a life that has meaning and purpose, but at their best, they are in service to the other. You know, maybe down the levels of health, we could think of someone like um, maybe Lance Armstrong, where success was so important that he cut some corners to get there. Yeah. 
Okay. What about, we forgot a two. Uh, oh, a healthy two, gosh. Um, uh, I am not, there's so many, but um, no one's coming to yeah, mind right. at the moment. It'll come to, yeah, can you okay. think of anyone? We'll think of the two, we'll try to think yeah, of them. I want to think of someone that people can, can relate to. Well, I almost um, think it's kind of ironic because of the the nature of the two is that maybe it's at least coming to mind kind of harder to see a big vision a big uh famous one because a lot of the healthy twos i know are very community-based yeah like it's true. They're, they're on the ground but mm -hmm. balancing their own care and their families so they may not be out in the spotlight as much because mm -hmm. that's kind of the not i have a lot of friends who are moms who are also nurses or social workers or caregivers mm -hmm. who have little kids and they're they're very too uh, there's mm -hmm. a lot of two nature there sure. um, yeah so, yeah but we'll think if there's anyone we'll think of them yeah <laughs> they're beautiful people and when they can really overcome that sense of not caring not pu putting themselves as a priority gosh the the joy that they can bring to others is beautiful um, so the type four, we call the individualist. So, and some, some teachings call it the tragic romantic, but think of the disconnect. So I know. And then when you talk to several type fours, they'll tell you that that often fits. I know, I'm going to start crying because I'll tell you about my oh, turn to four. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. No, I, anytime you want to share. Um, think of, you know, the infant, even though they don't sense a separation from the world around them or mother, they know that they're an individual. We all know that we have this kind of individual identity. For the type four personality, again, that has been kind of, um, it, well, there's a perception that it's gone. These essential qualities have never gone away. The personality is reacting and in a belief that they're gone. So the type four is always trying to create a sense of identity, individuality, and so they often show up as being very unique and special. They ha might have a special style or a special flair. They want to stand out in the crowd. They have incredible gifts of intuition, creativity. Many of our writers, poets, painters, the type four is incredibly creative. They have an appreciation for beauty. And at their best, they take that appreciation for beauty and they share it with the world through their poetry, through their painting, through their writing, whatever it might be. Um, but the journey is really one of uncovering that sense of identity. What often happens is the story becomes the identity. And so they get very attached to their story. So as a coach, what I help them to do is to separate from that and to see that there's so much more than their story. And again, so it, the theme is how I want to be seen. So the type two wants to be seen as helpful. Type three wants to be seen as successful. Type four wants to be seen as special or unique. That, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then moving to the head center. And if you think about if we're always in our head and our energy is always in our head, that's going to lead to some anxiety. So the predominant, um, the, the predominant emotion is anxiety, but there's a, a desire for understanding on all these types in the head center. So the type five, we refer to uh, as the investigator. Some refer to the type five as the observer. They are incredibly, incredibly bright and incredibly intelligent. What, what's the, the irony is their basic fear, that underlying fear that the personality is trying to overcome, they have a sense of not feeling capable of being in the world. And so they tend to kind of hold back and, and withdraw. 
They're incredibly capable because they're incredibly bright, but they tend to not trust that they have the capacity to function in the world. Um, when they can see that that's what's holding them back, they actually tend to connect to the world through their expertise. They, they can dive so deeply into a subject to know everything there is to know about it. For example, Russ Hudson, my teacher, is a type five, and he's a brilliant and gifted Enneagram teacher. And the depth of his understanding is, is just tremendous. Um, the type six, we refer to as the loyalist. So these are people that they will never let you down. Um, the disconnect is from a sense like the baby trusts that they're going to be fed and they're going to be taken care of. The personality of the type six has lost that sense of trust, like in a, in a benevolent universe. So they, the personality, they have to have everything figured out, mapped out, planned. It, it replaces that sense of underlying trust in the universe with a sense of kind of false certainty. Okay, if I do this, they play the what if game. What if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? They have the great troubleshooters because they have a plan for every possible worst case scenario. <laughs> Um, so when you, when they learn that that's what's underneath their fear is that the trust in the universe is gone and helping them to reconnect with that, they, they actually, they're incredible leaders. They never see themselves as leaders, but they're the glue that holds the family together, the team together, the relationship together. Um, but that comes from often a place of fear, but it actually, when they can do that from a place of trust and strength, they're amazing leaders. The type seven, we call the enthusiast. They look like the life of the party. They look like they're having a great time, but they'll tell you that really that comes from some anxiety. So their disconnect from the essential nature is a disconnect from a sense of joy or freedom. Think of the baby, there's so much joy, they're free to just be and express. So the personality of the type seven is always trying to grasp that joy and freedom. We often say they have kind of this um, insatiable appetite for life and life experience. But with their, instead of being present in the present moment, they're always grasping for something that's out there. Oh, there might, I'm in this relationship, but there might be a better one around the corner. So it's kind of one foot in, one foot out. So there is this sense of anxiety, even though they look like they're having so much fun, and they often are having fun and they're doing great things, but underneath it, there is some anxiety. So that's a very kind of quick journey around the nine types. I hope that's been helpful. Oh, so much so. I think every time I learn more or hear it again or hear different, the way that it comes through different teachers, it's really powerful too. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about, sort of get into next, that I know a lot of our community has been asking a lot of questions about is in terms of assessing your type. And this mm -hmm. is where I want us to share our own, how we know or what we've investigated from the personal level. But let's talk about the theory first is there's the RETI, R-H-E-T-I, the yep. Russ Hudson Enneagram. It's the Riso Hudson Enneagram Riso. Type Indicator. Yes, yep. I was like, right. But I just call it Ret ready. I just call yep. it, oh, just the ready. And so there's the ready, and then there's one, I've seen 16 types, that are nine types, that, that then does a subtype. Like, there's a lot of versions online. Yeah. And within the books. And mm -hmm. one of the things, so I think I've been studying for probably, like, maybe four years, three or four years, dabbling, right? I have mm -hmm. not gone to a longer workshop. I've not been part of a longer training. It's all been podcasts, conversations with Enneagram 
coaches and enthusiasts and books. So that's mm -hmm. where I've been. Uh, and journaling, just loads of journaling around typing. Um, and one of the things that I, I'm hearing from our community that I'm hearing it almost as a frustration or as an annoyance is that they'll take the typing and then either totally not identify or feel disappointed, right? As we talked about mm -hmm. earlier with ego mm -hmm. on the type. And then I have a lot of our community sign up for the daily Enneagram thought so that they yeah. can really start working with it. Mm -hmm. And some of the types, it's actually interesting, will say, I don't like these questions because they're so negative or they keep pulling out the negative side or the shadow. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about assessing yourself typing um, and I'll share my experience after you're done with like the three or four years, it's changed. And I don't think the actual type has changed. It's yeah. my way of viewing this sacred psychology and my own exploration that is bringing me to true nature. So can exactly. you talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. But you, you know, you really hit the nail on the head. It is a, it's a personal journey uncovering our type. Um, in terms of assessments, let me just say that there's no perfect assessment, and that's because of the nature of the Enneagram. One is, I talked about the levels of development. There are nine levels of development. It's a dynamic system. We're not like static, this is our type, we don't, you know, we don't move. We're influenced by the type on either side of us. We're influenced by whether or not we're in a grounded place or a place of more stress. When we're in a grounded place, we often bring on the uh, healthy qualities of a type. And when we're stressed, we bring on the less healthy qualities of another type. So depending on when we take the assessment, there's a lot of room for variability. So that's one, and that's with any assessment. Um, I do use the Riso Hudson Enneagram type indicator in my coaching practice. Um, it's the one that I feel most comfortable with. That doesn't mean that others aren't good. But I, I do want to put that caveat that there's no perfect assessment. What you describe about people's frustration, I understand. Now, when I first studied the Enneagram back in the early 90s, I was convinced I was a type four. Yeah. <laughs> Would not even look at the type three. Absolutely not. And when I first started studying with Russ, I started just becoming more open to it. And I think it was because he really taught it with a lot of compassion. Very often the three is, oh, they're the the showman, the, you know, they want to be the center. I'm like, I don't want to be the center of attention. You know, none of that resonates. So I didn't want to look at it. When I studied with him, and it was actually my first longer workshop, that one in San Francisco that I alluded to, that workshop, when he took a very deep dive into all of the types, and I saw that I was living my life in uh, trying to prove to my mother that I had value. So I was doing all this hard work. And it hit me um, really deeply. I, I actually, to this day, don't remember sobbing so deeply as I did during that um, moment of awakening to my type. So to, to address the fact of um, people don't want to hear the negative aspects of it, I, I think that one of the reasons I didn't identify as a type three initially was all I was hearing was the negative parts of it. Right. When Russ taught it. He taught about so many of the beautiful gifts of the types. So one of the things I would say, you, when you started the session this morning, you had a quote from Sandra Maitre. She's a beautiful teacher. She has a beautiful book called The Spiritual Dimensions of the Enneagram. She's really a lovely book. And I also love The Wisdom of the Enneagram. They're two really beautiful books that I would encourage people to, to take a look at if they're serious about really wanting to uncover their Enneagram type. 
it's unlikely that you're going to uncover it by taking one assessment. Right. As you're finding, it's a deep dive and it's a journey. And this is why as a coach and my teachers, Dawn Riso and Russ Hudson always told us, don't, don't tell people what their type is. Yes. You guide them through the process because it's a personal journey of, of waking up. And then when you do land on your type, there's such a, uh, an awareness and a knowing, even if there is some grief, like I said, I had tremendous grief, but at the same time, I felt this freedom. Yes. Okay. So when I started studying, I was still the owner, like still operating our yoga studios mm -hmm. and the nature of the work I had done up until that point was very three. When I heard <clears throat> this type of achievement and achiever, I really identified with that proving and striving and sort of, again, I don't even know that it was an unhealthy or healthy version. It just was my story, right? It was just, mm. this is the funny part. Like I was so integrated with the story of the achiever and doing that right okay so <laughs> then eventually i you know close the studio and start to move towards deeper intense work with groups and women and my own healing shamanic healing energy healers all these pieces uh and really sort of turning down the pace and noise of my life to really have mm -hmm. a much more inward quiet life so all, all on purpose and uh, suddenly I just would hear the two or sort of listen to the two and just cry. Mm -hmm. and, the, and also two seven were very, very close. I think it was one number off when mm -hmm. I took the Enneagram, when I took the Reti like 18 months later, right? So first mm -hmm. time three was very high. Mm -hmm. Second time two seven was very high. And I cried and journaled about how letting go of the studio was really an honor of healthy two. Because I love, and I had been a classroom teacher and started a school before and a conference, you know, all these achievements, but mm. all in the name of service and yeah. all in the name of doing for others. And so. Pleasance, can I pause for one sec? I just oh, might a bell. I'm so of sorry. Of course. That's I'll okay. Right of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> the good thing about Zoom. I know, right? Okay. So, um. But feeling that connection to the two seven because I could see so much about how the achieve the achiever three pattern was very external. However, mm -hmm. it was about gathering people, having fun, and serving them, and mm -hmm. continuing. I remember being in high school and I would spend like all week planning the party for the weekend because mm -hmm. I wanted to have fun and get everyone together. Fast forward to the actual party. I would most of the time be outside alone with one person and or like hiding in a corner. Interesting. Um, usually, to be quite honest, drinking too much because I really was uncomfortable with the dynamics of the party that I had just spent all week. Wow. Yeah. Together. Okay. So for me, I could see all these connections between serving and having fun and being yeah. in the center and this, this, how this was playing out. Okay. So creating patterns in my life to really address the healthy versions of the twos and sevens. And everyone who listens knows on July 1st, I quit drinking, which I heard like divine guidance said, stop mm -hmm. drinking. And I mm -hmm. said, okay. And then of course, when I got home and was like reading Enneagram that week, it said, oh, path for sevens is sobriety. <laughs> and I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, ah, okay. I didn't mm -hmm. even, I hadn't put that together. Mm -hmm. So there was all this layering. 
And then this fall, I went to a sacred Enneagram workshop live here in DC, led by a, a coach who uses Enneagram. And as she starts reading the four, <laughs> I just start like mm -hmm. ugly crying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I ask her about childhood trauma and I ask her about development and I ask her about how these things can keep changing or feeling like they're changing. But the more that I pulled at that, the, the four, the, the passion for authenticity, so funny, I've been making in my journal like a little list of all those little super secret things I do to be different. Like I have a smell and I use the same oil and everywhere I go, people say, oh, it smells like, you. I get texts, oh, are you here? I smell you. People text me, oh, can I hug you? Your smell is on me. Like I have a smell and I have a glitter that I wear. Like it's an I only wear and I wear it in the morning. Um, my name is very unique, obviously. Um, this desire, the minute I think I'm sort of in a box in my business or someone tells me what to do, my, I sort of put up my dukes and like, I'm different. I don't run my business that way. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I just feel this real deep uh, connection to writing and creativity and life that is um, just like glaring for at me these days, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So it's been fascinating and beautiful mm -hmm. to have these sort of different uh, waves, I would say at this point. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And what I'm learning now, I also study um, sacred feminine Buddhism, which oh. talks about Dakinis and the, and basically the, f the four or five Dakinis uh, and how they are colors and they are types. And mm -hmm. once you learn them all, they actually dissolve into like waves of flowing rainbows. Beautiful. Actually, I know it's beautiful. beautiful. And this reminds me of that in terms mm -hmm. of learning and investigating and then yeah. like sort of expanding and contracting and just allowing them all to kind of flow in and out of uh, the experience and I'm noticing that I don't actually like need to know or be so identified with the story of all of them that it's just a fascinating part of the sort of mm. unraveling. That is such a beautiful description of the journey and you know there our ego and our personality has um, lots of defenses in it so sometimes things will get pushed away and one of the things I also wanted to point out is that one thing we didn't talk about and it's an important part of the Enneagram yes. are the instincts yes yes so you're describing like um, gathering people having community um, being the person who uh, organizes the party all of that kind of thing that really sounds like the social instinct. So I just, can I take a moment to talk about the please instinct? Do. I think yes. it would be important for our listeners. Yes, please. So we all have these three instincts. And when I talked about the belly center, I said it also can be called the instinctive center. Our instincts live in our belly. They are so deeply unconscious. Think of it. And when we think of instinctual, we just do something automatically, right? Think of mother's instinct, that kind of thing. So think of the social instinct. If we're thinking of the animal world, they are safer when they travel in herds, right? So there's a sense of the group, the group feel. Thank you very much. Okay. Sure, absolutely. You can open it. You can open it right from. It's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Life. <laughs> life. Yeah. So the social instinct. The animals 
are safer when they travel in herds, right? So there's a sense of being in community, having the group. So in the human realm, that sense of um, a desire for community, a desire for a group field, that kind of thing, but also being altruistic and, and helping. And very often people with a dominant social instinct do a lot of volunteer work. Yeah. They might be on a lot of boards. You know, they um, plan parties, you know, that kind of thing. That, um, and next instinct, and, and think of our instincts. We all have all three. There's a dominant one. Think of a layer cake. There's a top, middle, and a bottom layer. The dominant one is on the top layer. The middle one is one that just occurs naturally and we don't really have to give it much attention. The bottom one is we often refer to as our blind spot. Yeah. So let me describe the three and let me talk about where, what it would look like as a dominant and a blind spot. So the next instinct is self-preservation. If you think of the animal world, it's all about safety and security, um, staying safe from predators. In the human realm, it's things like safety and security, our finances, our well-being, the safety and security of our environment. So someone who's dominant in that instinct, often they may be, um, when you're dominant and you're not aware of it, sometimes it's the thing that keeps you up at night or the thing you get obsessed about. Um, for self-preservation, they might be obsessed about their resources, their money, their health, their environment. Um, sexual is the third instinct, and I don't mean them in any order, but the third one that I'm mentioning. The sexual instinct, think of it as really the connection to kind of the, the life force, the, that sexual electrical energy. Now, um, in the animal world, you know, the animals have to be uh, awake and alert and have that life force to protect themselves. Let me describe if a social dominant person was walking into it, let's say there was going to be a workshop and you're walking into this group social dominant person would just instinctually have a sense of whether or not that group was cohesive. If yes. anyone was left out instinctually, they would know to bring them in. It's not an intellectual thing. It's very instinctual. Self-preservation dominant person walks into that same room and they're noticing the temperature. Where are the snacks? Where's the restroom? Sexual person, dominant person walks into that room and what they're noticing, and again, very deep and instinctually is, who am I going to get that zzz? Am I going to get that electrical energy from it? It doesn't mean in a sexual way. Yeah, it yeah. could be, but that's not what it means. It's like, who, who am I going to get that? Z so instead of being focused on the group, they're more focused on finding that one individual that they're going to get the, um, that connection with. So when you described your journey and you talk about the two and the seven being close, that's very common. A social dominant seven looks very much like a two, especially on an assessment because they're out there doing lots of things for the group. And the two and the four are connected, right? So the four um, is connected to the one and the two. And under stress, the four goes to two. So that would also, um, I'm curious where your four showed up when you did the assessment where you had the two seven. Do you know where the four showed up? Oh, it's always on the bottom. It's always the least. And so here is the other piece that just happened was I listened to, I listened to Typology with Ian Crone. I can't think of his name. Yes. The name um, of the podcast is Typology and yeah. his name is who hosts it. Yeah. He's a therapist and he is a four. And I've, and again, I've listened to him for years and never, every time he says four, I basically tune out and walk away. Right. Cause I'm like, that's not me. I don't that's need a sign. That's a sign. Okay. I don't have anything to do with that. My daughter is, but not me. You know, all of yeah. that. Mm -hmm. 
But now that I sort of tuning the radio and listening to him, he last week or two weeks ago in an episode said, just so you all know, my four comes up bottom every time I take the red. He's like, so just so you know, like, but I know myself and I know how I work and I know how I identify. So it doesn't. And then I was like, oh, thanks. Cause it never comes up on mine. It's one of the reasons I didn't really yeah. ever study it. Right. Uh, but here's um, something I'm really interested in with the social dominant type. Oh, and the two, four unhealthy to two. I know when I have too much on my plate because I start saying yes to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. habit, like boom, boom. Do you, can yeah. you sign up for this? Yes, 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 yes. There's no pause. There's, no. it's almost like I'm already in on the wheel. So no. why not just keep on it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's mm-hmm. what, that's why this coming off of the wheel for my actual work life harmony and Ayurveda has been my path to that, the actual mm-hmm. daily practices. Um, has allowed me to see, oh, there I am in that habit of over, and because I'm getting resentful or I'm getting exhausted, but so I don't have mm. to do that anymore. Yeah. And one of the things that's really fascinating with this social, the social seven, or even having the social instinct is that my inner world, inner life relationship and my relationship to my own care and nourishment is so deep. And I have really learned how to befriend and love and care for myself in a way mm-hmm. I never mm-hmm. thought. And um, I almost now socially, I still love gathering people. I still can mm-hmm. see oh, I have yeah. that intuition for the group and I love community. Um, but I also don't need uh, how do I say this? Like my inner, my relationship to myself is so kind of deep and intense and one-on-one, but mm-hmm. the, the group dynamics are, I, I need them for that mm-hmm. sort of energy, but I also can walk, leave and then just go back into that intensity with myself. It's more flowy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think I used to get in the groups and I'd seek love and appreciation and intensity and understanding mm-hmm. And in high school, I was gathering those people so we could have these conversations that we were not having and mm-hmm. shallow conversations. I can't do them. I, yeah. don't, I, I don't know how to do them. They, they, right. they, it's just not who I am. And so that intensity mm-hmm. of the four mm-hmm. and the wanting mm-hmm. to say, hi, I'm pleasant. It's like, what's the hardest thing you're going through? <laughs> yeah. Like that is what I've been hearing now from the fours, which makes so yeah. much sense the way that I gathered people in high school that then felt so empty and lonely and lost yeah. once we were actually together, which is why then I turned to drinking so much. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that, you know, again, you're describing so beautifully this journey of um, uncovering the, the type and very often the type four feels a sense of not belonging. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so that would be, you know, the social instinct and, and even the type two would help you to create this party and create this gathering and, and feel the, you know, the benefit of that. But then when everyone's there, there's this sense of, Oh no, I'm, I'm kind of the outsider. Yeah. Because they would say, well, you're so social. You're such an extrovert. You have so many friends, all these external, but the internal was so conflicted and lonely. Yeah. And that, that yearning that they talk about for fours, I mean, I think the seeking, you know, yeah. I've been reading Sark since I was 10, mm. you know, and, and drawing her pictures, like, no. it's just, 
so much more yeah. who I truly, who's underneath all of that, that mm-hmm. uniqueness, that loneliness, that yearning and seeking. And also one of the questions, uh, and the any of th- so I switched my any of thoughts of the day to three mm-hmm. and four. I'm just playing with three and four now. Yeah. Really, yeah. I've never got the threes. So I'm interested to see what mm-hmm. that looks like. And the four said, you know, in your relationship, your partner may feel like they're never, they can never do enough or be enough. Um, you know, they're not filling you because mm-hmm. you're different, you know, and I was just like, Ugh, my husband definitely <laughs> said that to me over the past 20 years, you know, always, you're always looking for ways that we could emotionally connect more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, aren't we already? <laughs> yeah. And that desire for the depth is yeah. so so important for the type four, exactly. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I'm realizing, I talked about on one of our last episodes was I really, truly desire to find joy and pleasure and lightness because mm. identifying more wholly with the four has brought clarity, but it's also brought energetic intensity to sure. writing and work and art and I already take things very seriously with my spiritual practices in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm actively saying, Hey, I want more fun. Let's go to comedy. Let's, mm-hmm. keep, let's go to dance night. Like I'm, I want to bring a sense of lightness because sure. I'm feeling like this almost vacuum. Yeah, no, I totally, that's, that's good self care. That's really exercising good self care. Interestingly, um, our, you know, we talk about our point of growth, but there's also something called the missing piece. And the missing piece is the highest aspect of our point of stress. So for example, the missing piece for the type four is the highest aspect of the type two, right? And the highest aspect of the type two is really about, you know, that true sense of altruism, but caring for yourself. It's exactly what you're describing. Like you're taking care of yourself you're also, you, you have this sense of, you know, community and altruism, but the self-care for you right now feels like it's the, the need for the lightness and the joy, and it's beautiful. It's really well, it's beautiful. fun and interesting. How, yeah. do you, how do you have people study it? When you're working with people, I, again, I'm thinking of our community members who are kind of rolling their eyes, pleasant. You want us to study one more thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're never going to get to the end with the outcome. So what, how do you recommend people work with this material? That's a really great question because, um, you know, we hear this, it sounds so trite, but you know, the, it's the journey that's important, right? And the journey of self-discovery using Enneagram as a transformational tool is I think unparalleled. Um, it's not a quick, it's not a quick fix. It's not a quick answer. Um, but the depth and the ability to really free ourselves from our habitual patterns is so wonderful. One of the things I would recommend that people do is, um, you know, certainly listen, um, but also uh, reading and reading uh, the books that I mentioned, The Wisdom of the Enneagram. There's wonderful books out there. I'm sure there are others as well. Those happen to be two of my favorites. I love that you went to an in-person workshop. I think that sometimes having that opportunity to to be in the presence of the teaching and to do some exercise, I'm sure in your workshop, you probably did some experiential work, some exercises. That's really helpful too. Um, So if people can find a workshop near them or, you know, a webinar, um, 
but really keeping in mind that it's not going to be something that is, you know, in the first 24 hours, they're going to like, oh, that's my type. I mean, it, it can happen, but it's, it's unusual. And like you said, you know, you kind of bounced around, but now it feels like you've landed on your type. Yeah. And even though there's some, and, and one of the, well, I wanted to point this out. I want to underline this a little bit. You said, oh, I never looked at the four. Like that wasn't me. That, that was me with the three. I never looked at the three. That's a clue. If there's a type that we have no interest in looking at, or we actually find some aversion to that type, that's a clue that could to maybe take a little bit of more of a look at that type because it could be our predominant type. So I would tell people to be patient, be kind to yourself. One of the things I love about the Enneagram is there's a real, it's imbued with compassion, compassion for self and other. So be patient, be kind, and be honest with yourself because the Enneagram, once we land on our type, it really can free us. And we can live a, a life that's much more kind of full and robust. What's the type where people take, I think it's a six, I can't remember, but where they, where the answer will always be, I, I don't fit into any of these, or I don't like this, or I don't, is it, or this is not me. I don't identify to any of these. Yeah. I, I, I recall when I was going through my training, we would, you know, stand up and introduce ourselves and our type. Yeah. And invariably, the type sixes would say, well, I thought I was a nine. I thought I was a two. I thought I was a one. I'm a six. Like this kind of deflated. Yeah. Whereas sixes are, I mean, all types are wonderful and beautiful and there's gifts. And the sixes are just as wonderful and beautiful as any other type. But there is this sense of, well, part of the, the challenge of the six is making decisions because there's this sense of uncertainty and lack of trust. So it shows up in their, their journey of typing often as well, that there's a, a real challenge with landing on their type. Or resistance. That's what I heard. That's yeah. what I felt a lot in our community. Yeah. Of the sixes. Like, what is this? You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. why are we doing this? I don't understand, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And they listen, very skeptical. Sure. Like you said in the beginning about this being ancient wisdom, I think one of the things that I really try to remind people from a larger social context is that where we live and how we live right now is very much like, oh, this is what's wrong with you. Here's the pill to fix it. Or yeah. I've got the, the five best steps to your health in 24 hours or make a million dollars online in six days. Like mm -hmm. we are actually in a society that's feeding you the baloney that things can happen so fast and quickly. And when we're talking mm -hmm. about spiritual psychology and transformation and transcendence and trauma, uh, we're talking about time. We're talking about overtime. We're talking about living into the questions mm -hmm. rather than the knowing. And so I want to say that yeah. one of the reasons why this feels so can, can be challenging for people, I think, is because even Myers-Briggs is like, here's your type and here's what you do. And mm -hmm. I love archetypes and I love systems um, that help you learn more. But the reason I keep going back to Enneagram and really really encouraging students to keep with it is because of the relational aspects. Can you talk a little bit about your relationships in any room? Sure, absolutely. I, I want to just underline something that you said too about the, the um, we are hearing so much about the quick fixes. Yeah. You know, Russ beautifully talks about this in the forward of my book where he talks about um, there is no real quick fix. You know, there's spiritual bypass. We can say, okay, you know, but if we really want to go on an authentic journey, it's going to take some time and effort. 
In terms of relationships, what I love about the Enneagram is when we understand not only our type, but the types of others, and we understand, as I described, that there's, a, there's an underlying kind of feeling of disconnect from our true nature. If we, if so for example, if we have someone who's a type one and they're really taskmasters and everything has to be right, if we bring to that relationship a compassion for that individual because we understand that what's underneath that is a fear that they're not good, we can have so much more compassion, right? And we don't judge and, and then we can relate to that person and we can say things and um, give messages to them that show our appreciation for how good they are and what they bring. And you can help people by this understanding. So I think it's, it's an amazing tool for relationships. I forgot, Catherine, this is how I learned about it. Oh. I had a manager at, at, well, I had heard the name and I sort of, I was like, I don't know what that is. And mm -hmm. I have too much on my plate at the time to deal with it. Babies and studios and I can't. Mm -hmm. And I have, I had a beautiful friend and manager, shout out to Liz Lemons, who said to me, we were driving, uh, I think to Delaware, and I was in tears about my marriage. And I was like, mm -hmm. I, I don't understand him. He's driving me crazy. We've been together so long. I was so upset. And I had mm -hmm. little babies in a studio and I was like, I don't think I want to stay. I don't know what to do. And she, we started talking about his type, his possible type. And when I, either right before that trip or, or when I got home, started reading through the lens of my husband. And mm. that's when I, I mean, my jaw dropped because I'm like, that's him. This is what he does. Yeah. Oh, you mean not everybody lives in this lens that I have? Like that was the yeah. first, because I had this real clear issue that I needed. I could not figure out how to solve or make mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. And so this, her really encouraging me to study his possible type is what then helped me start the real deeper journey, more committed yeah. because I could actually see that he was, that some of his personality were in this particular type at the time and then being able to have a conversation with him and then doing my own work. So, so funny. Yeah. I totally forgot that that's actually like when I really got committed was because mm -hmm. I felt trapped by it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, you've described beautifully how the Enneagram can really help our relationships. It just brings that awareness and compassion. So mm -hmm. much so. Yeah. Um, okay, so to wrap up, you talked a little about our book, your book. Tell us about your book. I'm sorry I don't have the copyright here. I have it downstairs on the table. That's I okay. Um, my book is called Everything's Going to Be Okay, From the Projects to Harvard yeah, to Freedom. Yes. <laughs> I love that. And the title, Everything's Going to Be Okay, comes from, um, really, I would call it divine intervention. When I was a little girl, I was six years old. I grew up in the um, housing projects in South Boston, and I was walking to school by myself at age six. And I just had this, just like when I woke up from the accident in 2005, just this thought, this knowing that passed through my being and, the, and it was, don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. And it really changed my life. And the subtitle is From the Projects to Harvard to Freedom. As a three, I worked my tail off to get from the projects to Harvard. And then I had that accident, which really helped me to see that there's so much more to life than our achievements. And so my, my book is about my personal journey with the Enneagram, and I do some teaching in each chapter, and I have questions for reflection in each chapter as well. Yeah, I love it so much. I really love the, in, the, in, the way that you integrated your stories with the teachings and the questions, mm -hmm. and it's such a gift to have uh, 
books where you can refer and have them that have that layering um, mm, where it's not you. just uh, it's multidimensional basically. Yeah, I appreciate. Um, and I'll ask a big ask when you come to Washington sometime when you have time. Let's do a workshop for. Community. I would love that. I would love that. So fun. Yeah, and I love Washington. Yeah. Great place. We don't have, we, we really have, don't have a large Enneagram community at this mm. point. Um, so I would love to uh, have you. Come. I would be happy to do that. Yeah. It's such an easy flight from Boston. Oh, yay. <laughs> um, okay. So to close, I just want to say thank you so much for the work that you do, uh, for being in the world, for doing this work, for bringing Enneagram more to life, expanding it. And writing your book and just sharing your story with us, it's really, really valuable. And I truly believe that's how we all learn is from each other and our shared human experience. So thank you, dear Catherine. You're so welcome. Thank you for this opportunity to share with you, Pleasance. It's been a delight. Where can everyone find your book and more about you? Um, the book is available on Amazon. It's going to be coming out um, on Barnes and Noble, I believe, later this week or early next week. But for now, it's on Amazon. And my website is CatherineHayesCoaching.com. And they can contact me through the website or Catherine at CatherineHayesCoaching.com is my email. I'll put a link into the show notes. Thank so you. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. And may you live with ease. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings.